The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Episode 222 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by Self-Publishing School and by FreshBooks. Get a free copy of Chandler Bolt's book, Published, when you sign up for free training on how to go from blank page to published author in as little as 90 days. Visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash published to get your free copy now. And for 30 days, you can use FreshBooks cloud accounting software absolutely free, get access to all of their features, and you don't even need a credit card to take advantage of their free trial. To find out more, freshbooks.com slash read to lead. What we want is we want the past, present, and future to integrate into something coherent for us. And, and that's what it means to be satisfied and to have led a good life. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff Brown, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And you probably know that I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then you need to want to be a lifelong learner. Intentional and consistent reading is a big part of that. And to that end, the Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but bring you some of the key insights and valuable ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. We dig into the content of their latest book. Now, in just a few minutes, we'll sit down together with New York Times best-selling author several times over, Dan Pink. His new book is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and I love this book. I'll ask Dan to share about things like how the type of person you are impacts when you should perform certain types of tasks and when you might want to avoid them, how to practically predict when your team will begin the real work on a particular project, the importance of being intentional about how you handle breaks, and plenty more. I think you'll find today's conversation with Dan especially helpful to you if you're trying to do something like, say, write a book. You may already realize that you perform better at certain times of the day attempting tasks like that, and Dan's book and research bear that out. But either way, you probably know that writing a book is hard, and writing a book that actually makes money, that's read by real people, that don't have the same last name as you, well, that can be super hard if you don't have a proven system in place that you can follow. Now, my friend Chandler Bolt wants to give you a free copy of his book, Published. It's a book that's been featured here on the podcast, and he wants to give you that book for free. Normally costs about $15 by simply registering for his free training, where he shows you the exact process to follow to go from blank page to becoming a published author in as little as 90 days, and the exact book launch blueprint to follow to launch your book to $10,000 and beyond and earn monthly royalties month after month. Now, if you've ever thought about writing a book, regardless of whether that was to earn an extra income stream or to generate leads for your business, or maybe to just share a story that you feel you need to tell, I think you owe it to yourself to sign up for this training. Again, it's completely free and you can register for it right now at readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 
published. And remember, when you do, Chandler is going to send you absolutely free a copy of his book published just for signing up for this free training. Once again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. If you run a business and are looking to save some time, and who isn't, maybe you need to save some time to squeeze in some extra writing time for that book you're working on, let me encourage you to check out FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software. It's the accounting software I use and have used for nearly 10 years now. It saves me tons of time and helps me keep track of what's going out and what's coming in. I get paid faster. Clients can pay me online. I can create invoices really easily. I just can't imagine using anything else. If you'd like to check it out, FreshBooks has made it super simple to do so. You can get access to all of their features and use them for up to 30 days absolutely free. To take advantage of that free trial, all you need to do is go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. You'll get immediate access, no credit card required or anything like that, no obligation. Just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead to try out FreshBooks cloud accounting software for your business right now. Dan Pink is the author of several best-selling books, including the New York Times bestsellers Drive, A Whole New Mind, and a book we talked with him about uh, back in episode 28, several years ago, called To Sell is Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 35 languages, which is usually a pretty good sign that they're they're doing okay. Uh, His latest book, which came out in January, and one that I'm excited to talk to him about today is called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, thank you for being here today and coming back to Read to Lead. Jeff, thanks for having me back. Well, I have to say that hands down, this book is a book I've probably taken uh, more notes on than just about any book I've read in quite some time. I have a oh, wow, thanks. A, a small notebook I dedicate to this process, 24 pages of notes. <laughs> wow. Well, we've all heard that the timing is everything, and we assume uh, that timing, though I think, is an art, as I did. But Dan says that, that timing is really a science. So how so, Dan? How, how did you come to that conclusion exactly? Well, I started looking at the research. What happened is that I was frustrated in some of my own decision-making, particularly about decisions about when to do things. Mm. And so I, I, you know, I was making them really in a sloppy, haphazard way. And I said, well, there's got to be a better way to make it. And I started, you know, I just wondered out of curiosity, is there any research on this? And I I took a quick look and I was really shocked. Uh, There was a huge amount of research, but challenge was it was spread over many, many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. It was in, you know, economics and social psychology areas where I have some familiarity where I've written about before. But this was this research was also in molecular biology you know the research was in endocrinology there was research a whole field called chronobiology and um what's interesting is that you had literally about two dozen fields Mm. where this researchers were asking similar questions to one another but they weren't talking to each other you know we talk about corporate silos you know universities are even more siloed than corporations oh wow do i remember correctly i don't know if i read this in the book or maybe uh, in the uh, book signing i saw you at in nashville a few months back maybe you mentioned it there were you in the process of writing a different book when you shifted gears to write this one, or am I making that up? You're, general, you're generally right. I was actually not in the process of writing a different book. I had actually written one and a half proposals mm. that I abandoned before turning to this book. Ah. And it really was a good memory, though, from that. <laughs> I, that's probably like an offhand comment uh, <laughs> on that night that I saw you. Uh, yeah, so, so what had happened was is that I actually like writing book proposals uh, because <laughs> – it, it's sort of a business plan for a book. It makes you really think 
hard. What's this book about? Why is it different? Why has nobody written it? Why are you the person, perfect person to write it? Who's going to buy it? What's it going to contribute to the world? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a it's a business document more than a literary document. And I started and I basically wrote an entire one first. And I said, you know what? I don't think I want to spend two years on this. I don't think it's good enough. I started a second one and was kind of stymied doing that. And that's when actually, so you're so you're right. That's when I said like, okay, this is fine. It's like I don't like to rush these kinds of things. And then and then at some point I said, man, oh man, it's like I, I think the real impetus was what was for me about should I exercise in the morning or should I exercise later in the day. And I didn't know like what was best. And so I started looking around and it's like, whoa, wait a second, there's some guidance here. And it's like, well, what about doing certain kinds of work? Whoa, there's a huge amount of stuff here. Mm. And then I said, holy moly. And then when I started looking at some of the initial research and, and writing that proposal, uh, it was like butter. I mean, it was, everything <laughs> came together so nicely. And as I wrote the proposal, my view was, holy moly, like, I totally want to read this book. So unfortunately, <laughs> in order to read it, I had to write it. <laughs> and we're very glad that you did, for sure. Well, I think uh, the first chapter can probably uh, best be summed up by what scientists call the uh, synchrony effect. Uh, Dan, what have yeah. you found to be true with respect to a person's type? And I'd love for you to go into detail on that. Uh, the task they're attempting to perform and the time they choose to, to attack it. Yeah. So what we have going on is, is a hidden pattern of the day. Our days unfold in fairly common ways. And what we know, in particular when it comes to work, is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. They change. They change in material ways. They can change in significant ways. And the best time to do something depends on what we're doing. And so what we're going for, exactly as you say, Jeff, is the synchrony effect, which is matching up our type, our task, and our time. So our type is something called chronotype, which is sort of what the field of chronobiology, that's their term for Basically, are you a morning person or an evening person? <laughs> and what we know is about 15% of us are strong morning people, wake up early, go to sleep early. They're larks. Mm. 20% of us are very strong evening people, wake up late and go to sleep late. They're owls. And about two-thirds of us, most of us, are in the middle. So the first thing you do is you should figure out what your chronotype is. Mm. And we can figure out your chronotype right now as just an example. Sure. Um, so there's something called the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire, which is a scientifically validated assessment that people can find online and, and, and complete. But there's a real, there's actually an even simpler back of the envelope way that you and I can do right now. So uh, I want you to think about what chronobiologists call a free day. A free day is a day you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. You're not massively sleep deprived. You can, you know, go to sleep and wake up anytime, you know, at your discretion. So on those, on that kind of day, what time would you typically go to sleep? I would go to bed probably, I would say 11 or 12, maybe. Okay. And then what time would you typically wake up? Seven, maybe eight. Okay. So let's just say, we'll just take the, the, the middle of those things. So mm-hmm. let's say 1130 to 730. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for is your midpoint of sleep. So your midpoint of sleep, 1130 to 730 would be... Uh, what, 330? 330. So that's interesting. That's actually a fairly common chronotype. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, right adjacent to mine. I'm the most common one because I'm a very common, ordinary guy. <laughs> and then, but, but you're here right adjacent to me. So, so here's what we know. So we take that midpoint of sleep, 3.30. And what we know is that if, you, if your midpoint is before 3.30, you're probably a lark. If your midpoint is after 5.30, you're probably an owl. And if your midpoint is between 3.30 and 5.30, you're what I call a third bird. You're in the middle. So you're, you're not like a full-fledged lark, but you're larky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for you and, and for me, my midpoint of sleep, I typically would go to sleep on a free day at, at midnight and wake up at eight. So my my free, my my midpoint would be four, mm. which, again, is in the middle, but larky. So here's <laughs> what we know. Uh, most of us, 80 percent of us go through the day in three stages. Peak trough recovery, peak trough recovery. 
and most of us go through in that order. Our peak is generally early in the day, trough early afternoon to mid-afternoon, middle of the day, and then recovery later in the day. So what we know about that is we know our type, okay? So mm-hmm. we know that we're going to go, th- that, that you, Jeff, are going to go through the day peak trough recovery. People who are owls, 20% of us, much more complicated. They sometimes go in their reverse order, but the key thing for them is that they have their peak much later in the day, late afternoon and early evening. So what we want, so that's our type, all right? So we mm-hmm. know how we're going through the day. So we go to our task, okay? What we have to figure out is, is what kind of task are we doing? Is our task a, an analytic task? All right, does it require heads down focus and attention? Uh, is it purely an administrative task? It doesn't require massive, heavy cognitive load. Or is it uh, what psychologists call an insight task, which is a little bit more creative, mm. more freewheeling, looser? That's our task. Here's what we know. We should be doing our analytic work during our peak because during our peak, we're highest in vigilance. Mm. Vigilance means you can bat away distractions. That's the key point about vigilance. So people like you and me, we should be doing our analytic work, work that requires like that kind of attention, focus, intensity, where you want to keep away distractions, we should be doing that early in the day. Uh, Almost all of us should be doing our administrative tasks, filling out stupid forms, answering routine (laughs) email in the early early to mid-afternoon, because that's Mm. the worst time for performance on many, many, many dimensions. All kinds of bad stuff happens then. And then later in the day, that's a stage called the recovery. It's an interesting stage. People like you and me, 80% of us, our mood goes back up. Our mood is high, but our vigilance is not very high. But that combination of reduced vigilance and elevated mood makes it a good time for things like brainstorming, for iterative work. So that's when we should be doing our insight tasks. So all of which is to say, do your analytic work in the peak, your administrative work in the trough, and your insight work during the recovery. Um, And so if you're an owl, you know, you want to be doing your analytic work later in the day. Mm. You want to be doing your administrative work in the middle of the day. And and where possible, in the earlier in the day, you want to be doing your more iterative, looser kind of work. I'm not totally convinced on that for Mm. owls, but I am convinced for owls analytic work much later in the day hmm. and how appropriate is it that that uh, we hear birds singing in the background as you're talking about owls do you really <laughs> okay yeah I, I have on headphones i don't i don't uh, i don't hear it coming in yeah i do have my i do have my windows open but i'm glad to provide free sound effects for you, so. i love it i absolutely love it i don't know whether that was an lark or an owl or a third bird chirping. <laughs> Well, in in that people at work, uh, leaders, bosses, and and I think of educators, too, who are leading groups of people who fall into all different categories. So how does someone, say a boss or an educator armed with this information, how might they apply this? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think that the the, the first step in that is actually to know that this is a question to ask, to be Mm -hmm. deliberate about it. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of this. And and it's something I think that your listeners can relate to, Jeff. My guess is that today or let's say this week has spent some amount of time in meetings. Mm -hmm. There's so (laughs) many meetings out there. And my guess that those meetings were scheduled with zero strategic thought behind them, because that's how we schedule meetings. (laughs) When we schedule meetings in organizations, the only criterion we think about is availability. Is Fred Mm. available? Is Maria available? And is conference room 3C available? Mm. And we don't ask the question that you're asking. Who's going to be at this meeting? People who are better in the morning, Mm. people who are better later in the day. What kind of meeting is this? Do we need people to be locked down and analytical? Do we need people to be more freewheeling and iterative? Is this purely a, an administrative? We don't, a, we don't ask those questions. And once we begin asking those questions, we can be more deliberate and intentional about when we schedule meetings. We spend a huge amount of time in meetings and there is almost no strategic thought to when we hold them. And so simply bringing that 
to the table can be effective. Now, if you have a mix of different people, then it becomes somewhat complicated. Mm -hmm. All right. But but at least, you know, the complication that you face. And so if you have a, if, so if you have an office full of, of owls, people who are better doing stuff at, late at night, don't have an eight o'clock in the morning meeting <laughs> about about, you know, something significant that requires that requires focus. Don't do that. If you have a, a group of owls, don't do a brainstorming meeting at eight o'clock in the morning because they're going to be hyper vigilant and say, that's a stupid idea. That's a stupid <laughs> idea. That's a stupid idea. Um, if you have if you have people who are doing analytic work and, you know, again, 80 percent of us do better on analytic work in the morning. If you have a group of people who fall into those 80 percent, you know, give them a few hours in the morning to do their heads down work. Don't stuff a 930 meeting about the travel voucher policy into their prime time. What we need to do is we need to think of the scheduling of meetings, among among other things, in a strategic way, not merely in a logistical way. I, I remember texting uh, my sister, who's a teacher, uh, pictures from the, some of the studies in Chapter Three, uh, and you know she oh, has yeah. she has uh, you know very little control over that that yeah. schedule. I remember being in high school and, and school starting at seven thirty in the morning. Uh, so so yeah. what, what what advice would you give an educator? Is it just a matter of just knowing what they're dealing with, like you said before? That's part of it. I mean, I think an individual educator, uh, like a classroom teacher, has a limited amount of discretion. But I think that just I think being aware of these things is really important. And I think it's important for school administrators to understand what's going on here. So, for instance, so it gets a little bit complicated here because our chronobiology changes with a little bit with age. Uh, mm -hmm. What we know are little kids tend to be very strong larks, get up early, wake up early, start running around like crazy people from the get. <laughs> uh, but around the age of basically mid-teens, most people have a pretty significant move toward lateness, mm. uh, sometimes two, three hours, and that lasts until the mid-20s. And then in general, 80% of us go back to intermediary or larkiness. So for elementary school kids, uh, there is a mound of evidence out there, pretty compelling evidence, showing that standardized test scores are better in the morning and kids learn math better in the morning. So we should be doing as much as we can those analytic subjects in the morning. When we can't do that for elementary school kids, uh, there are remedies. And there's a really interesting study out of Denmark where students in Denmark take standardized tests. They take them on computers rather than on you know, bubble forms, as we sometimes still do in the United States. Mm. The typical Danish school, though, has more students than computers, so everybody can't take the test at the same time. So the students, two million students, were randomly assigned to take tests at different times of day, some in the morning, some in the afternoon. And the kids who took the test in the afternoon scored as if they'd missed two weeks of school. Mm. I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> and, and so the fact of the matter is, is that everybody can't do everything in the morning. The remedy in Denmark's case was as follows, and it's pretty interesting, that giving those afternoon students a 20 to 30 minute break to have a small snack and run around right before the test, raise their scores back up. So I think what these teachers can do where possible is, especially for some of these afternoon subjects for littler kids, give kids a break. We tend to think that recess is a deviation from learning. Recess is part of learning. Learning. Mm. Breaks are part of how we learn and how we perform. Now, for high school kids, middle school and high school kids, teenage kids, basically what they should be, what school should not be doing is exactly what the schools that you and I went to did, <laughs> which is start so painfully early in the morning for teenagers. Mm. Uh, what we know about teenagers is they have this marked move toward lateness, so much so that the American Academy of Pediatrics in 1994 issued a statement imploring school districts across America, do not start school for teenagers mm. before 8.30 in the morning. It is contraindicated by everything we know about teen biology. And yet, you know, the average school start time in America is about 8 o'clock, which means that there are plenty of schools that are starting at 7.30, which means there are plenty of kids getting on buses at 6.30. Mm. 
Uh, that's just crazy. And on this one, as I mean, as you know, but I mean, this is a bit of a rant. You know, <laughs> the evidence on this one, the evidence on early school start times for teenagers as deleterious to their learning is overwhelming. And schools that have changed start times for teenagers, not going crazy here. We're not talking about starting school at two in the afternoon or noon. We're talking about starting school at 915, mm. 930. Schools that have made this change have seen lower dropout rates, higher test scores, less teen obesity, less teen depression, fewer car accidents. I mean, it's pretty amazing. This is one of those areas where it's not a close call. And what you have is you have the, I mean, truly, every pediatrician in America knows this and has been telling schools this for several years, but it remains a very stubborn, very stubborn problem. Yeah, slow to, slow to change for sure. You, you hinted at breaks a little bit. I wanted to dig into that a little more because in the book you talk about not just breaks, but being intentional with with what, yeah. we, what we do with them. And I think one of the most fascinating parts of this is a specific kind of break. I'm thinking of adult breaks and the Nappuccino. And, and, and just that's oh. uh, easily some of the most uh, fascinating uh, research I've read on this on this whole break idea. Oh, thanks. So what we know about breaks is, uh, we you know, all of us, you and I, old guys like you and I need breaks too. <laughs> and um, it's interesting. I mean, to the extent that anyone is interested in the evolution of the book is that I have a chapter on the hidden pattern of the day. And I originally set out to have breaks be maybe a you know, two, three page section mm. of that first chapter, The Hidden Pattern of the Day. As I got into actually writing the book, I was so blown away by the research on breaks that I now that breaks turned into its own separate chapter <laughs> because I think the research is that bountiful and that powerful. And what we know about breaks is that we should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. We'll, we'll get to that one break that you mentioned here in a moment. But we know that in general with breaks, the science is telling us very clearly that something is better than nothing, that even a one minute break is better than no break at all. We know that social breaks are better than solo breaks, even for introverts, which I found really quite fascinating. So breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on your own. Mm. We know that um, uh, moving is better than stationary. So and I think a lot of us are familiar with that, the research on the dangers of sitting, mm. um, the importance of, you know, just having some movement over the course of a day. Uh, we know that outside is better than inside. Some really interesting research on the restorative effects of nature. And then we know that fully detached is better than semi-detached. So, you know, leave your phone behind. Don't talk about don't talk about work. And so we should be, you know, to use your word again, intentional about taking mm -hmm. breaks, that we should be taking more breaks and taking these, cer these certain kinds of breaks. I'm not talking about, you know, two hour break every afternoon, <laughs> but I'm talking about, you know, take, you know, one or two 10 or 15 minute walks outside with someone you like, leaving your phone behind. Those can improve performance. Now, naps, <laughs> There's a whole set of research on naps, and naps are pretty darn good for you. What I was surprised by in the napping research is that the best naps are remarkably short. The best naps are between 10 and 20 minutes long, that you get the restoration of a nap without what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, mm. boggy feeling that you get sometimes when you nap for too long. So a 10 to 20 minute nap is really the ideal nap, but the super ideal nap, the super duper bonus best deal nap is <laughs> do the following. And, I, and I've done, I actually did one of these yesterday. What I do is I, I have a chair in my office and I sit in my chair. I put on some noise canceling headphones and I set my timer for 25 minutes. Well, right before I set my timer, I just have a big cup of coffee. I just put some, make a cup of coffee, but put some ice cubes in it. So I just gulp it down. Mm. And that seems kind of weird. So then I close <laughs> my eyes and I can at this point usually fall asleep in 10 minutes or so. Mm. So 
Uh, my alarm goes off at 25. So I have slept for 15 minutes. So I wake up and I've gotten that ideal length nap between the 10 and 20 minute mark. But remember, I had that cup of coffee. It <laughs> takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into our bloodstream. And so at the moment I'm waking up, I get this extra boost mm. from that caffeine in my bloodstream. And as, as you say, this is, uh, there, there actually are several scientific papers on this uh, showing its efficacy. And, um, but it is called, and I love the name, it's called a Nappuccino. <laughs> you know, the last few years, I've begun to hear a bit more about the importance uh, of naps for things like increased uh, flow, for example, especially as we get older, yeah. as, as, as you said. But what you've written on this topic, to me, really, uh, more than anything else I've seen, is helping to erase what is often a stigma associated yeah. with naps. We take naps, we're, we're lazy, is kind of, at least here in, exactly. in the States, right? Absolutely. That's, a wrong, that's, that's, a, that's really the wrong way to think about it. Listen, that's how I used to think about it. Mm. You know, I used to think that if I took a nap I, when I woke up, I would, not only, I would feel bad in all senses of the word, like bad, you know, like groggy, but also bad, ashamed of myself. <laughs> Well, I, I was fascinated as well to read, uh, not necessarily surprised based on some of the uh, group projects I did in college and, and in teams later in life, that in team environments, you can practically predict when the real work is going to begin <laughs> on a project. Share, share your insights into this, Dan, and, and your recommendations for, for dealing with it. These are insights coming from the science. And one of the best researchers on this is a woman named Connie Gersick, who was at UCLA for many years, mm -hmm. who studied teams in action. And, and I found her methodology really interesting is that what she did... She had teams do, you know, she followed teams doing projects, but she videotaped and audiotaped everything that they did and then went back and, you know, watched every excruciating minute, <laughs> second and minute of these teams, you know, coming up with a new onboarding process at an insurance company or something like that. And as she analyzed this stuff, what, what she did is she said that, you know, at the beginning of a project, teams actually don't do that much actual work. I mean, there's status seeking and posturing and sometimes enthusiasm. <laughs> but not a lot of actual work. And she found there was a certain moment, though, when they cast off old patterns and really got down to business. And that moment was invariably at the temporal midpoint of the project. So teams that had 31 days to do a project got started in earnest on day 16. Teams that had 11 days got started in earnest on day six. Uh, there was something about that midpoint that was galvanizing. And mm. often she found there was someone who literally announced a time signal saying, you know, essentially, oh, my God, we're halfway through the project and we haven't gotten anything done. We better get going. And everybody's like, go, you know. And so midpoints have that effect. Midpoints can also have the effect of dragging us down. There's other research showing that when we hit a midpoint of something, we sometimes will slump. So it has this dual effect. Sometimes it makes us slump. Other times it makes us really get going. There's some other very intriguing research research from the National Basketball Association, the NBA, uh, done by Jonah Berger at Penn and Devin Pope at Cargo, where they looked at halftime scores of NBA games to see to what extent those halftime scores predicted the final score. And what they found is that teams leading at halftime were more likely to win. I don't, you know, no big surprise there. Mm. But I think the big, the, the surprise was the one exception to that, which was that teams that who were trailing by one point were more likely to win the teams that were ahead by one point. Mm that being behind by one point was as advantageous as being ahead by two points. And in subsequent experimental work, they found that that being a little bit behind at the midpoint can be really, really galvanizing. When we're way ahead at the midpoint, we get complacent. When we're way behind, we give up. But being a little bit behind 
can really help improve performance. So I guess the main takeaway to that question is, once again, it's about being aware. Mm. So if you have a project and undertaking and it has a beginning and it has an end, by its nature, it has a midpoint. <laughs> and so simply being aware of that, you know, th- that midpoint is going to exert some effect on your behavior and on your team's behavior. So certainly being aware of that is the, is the first step. And so be aware of midpoints, uh, use them to galvanize rather than to slump. And one way to use them to galvanize is to imagine you're a little bit behind. I can remember just uh, a couple of months ago watching the NBA playoffs, and though my team wasn't in the playoffs for long, unfortunately, rooting for them to be a point behind at halftime, <laughs> based on what I what I read in your book. Who is the team? Uh, I'm I'm from Indiana, so I'm an Indiana uh, Pacers yeah. guy. They yeah. didn't they didn't make it past uh, Cleveland. There were some sports writers uh, picked up on mm. a little bit on um, uh, how often the Warriors who ended up winning the whole thing, as you know, were a little bit behind at halftime. Mm, interesting. Well, we've talked about beginnings. we talked about midpoints. Regarding uh, the studies on endings, uh, Dan says they often show that, that we evaluate experiences or, or, or memories, even things like meals, movies, vacations, not by the full experience, but by a certain moment, and especially the end. Uh, why do you think that is, Dan? Is it simply because it's the most recent thing we can think back to, or is, or is there more to that? I think that's part of it. Um, and, and I actually don't know why. Um, mm. I think we know that, but I think knowing why is, is, is tougher. What we do know is that people, uh, the, that endings, that we have this preference for, for rising sequences at the end rather than declining sequences at the end. And then we also know that endings help us encode, that the way something ends has a big effect, you know, an outsized effect on the way we evaluate and record that entire experience. And so I, I think that the, what the lesson of all that is to pay close attention to endings more than we simply realize. That, that, so you, to be intent, and again, it goes back to intentionality. Mm. Treat endings in an intentional way and use endings to elevate, use endings as a form of you know, creating meaning for people. Well, I thought it was interesting to, to read that, that the word time is the most common noun in the English language. Yeah. What do you mean, Dan, when you say that the challenge of the human condition is to bring the past, the present, and the future together? Yeah, there's some interesting research. It's a little heady um, in, a, in a range of fields showing that some of this advice that we get about living in the present, I mean, it's not terrible advice. Mm. What seems to lead to greater satisfaction is this ability to integrate past, present, and future. So you look at an emotion like nostalgia, which we, which I think has a negative cast to it in the popular world. Mm. In fact, at one point, nostalgia was considered a mental illness. And what we know now is that actually nostalgia is actually a very positive emotion and, and, and leads to well-being. Uh, because nostalgia isn't necessarily a pining for the past. It basically is a way to connect your present to your past. Same thing is true with looking at the future. And so I think the takeaway of this is that what we want is we want the past, present, and future to integrate into something coherent for us. And, and that's what it means to be satisfied and to have led a good life. I, I, I don't, I think the research is, is, is clear on savoring and stopping and noticing but I think that for the broader sense of well-being and satisfaction and purpose, it is feeling the coherence of one's life uh, between the past, the present, um, and the future. Mm-hmm. Before I let you go here, Dana, I want to ask a couple of questions not directly related to the book, if I may. You obviously uh, read quite a bit in your research uh, leading up to this. I'd be curious to know, since you and I last spoke a few years ago, if there's any, any books you've read, titles that come to mind that have had uh, an impact on you? And if so, how, how might those books have, have impacted your work? 
Oh, I, there are all kinds of books have, have affected me. I mean, off the top of my head, uh, I was really intrigued by a book called Sapiens mm-hmm. by Yuval Harari about uh, basically it's this pretty audacious history of the human species in 400 pages. <laughs> uh, I really liked University of Pennsylvania Wharton School professor Adam Grant had a book a few years ago called Give and Take about really good evidence on the power of generosity. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was quite good. I, I liked the Heath Brothers book, uh, The Power of Moments. I thought that was uh, quite a good book. I really liked their book, Decisive. I found that an incredibly helpful and powerful book. Uh, I recently read, uh, I mean, literally finished it a few days ago, a book called Bad Blood, which is a story of uh, the Theranos scandal. Mm. And that's a great read about just how organizations can go awry and how organizations can slowly rot and what happens when people are operating under conditions of fear. So, I, I mean, I just think there's, you know, I think there's an embarrassment of riches of good books that are out mm. there. You know, I think you know this from, you know, probably yourself and, the, and your book clubs and things like that. It's like each book you read contributes a little bit to how you see the world. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's it's hard to go back and identify exactly like, oh, that's why I think that because I read <laughs> X, Y, or Z. But I, I think they do have these effects. And I think that the more you you read and the more you read widely, the more you can understand the world, be a better leader. And I think even more important, be a better human being. I know you've done at least one TED Talk, but are there any plans to do a, a TED Talk or any invitations uh, coming your way in regard to this book? No plans to do a TED Talk on this. I've done, you know, some other kinds of talks and things on this, but mm-hmm. um, some may, maybe down the road. I, I actually think it would, I think there are a lot of stuff in here that could work as a short TED Talk. Uh, well, to that, as, as somebody who uh, does quite a bit of speaking, I'd be curious to know if you have any any tips for delivering an impactful and, and memorable talk. I'm, I'm a big believer in practicing. As am I. <laughs> I. I think a lot of people don't practice and rehearse enough. I'm also, I mean, this is sort of general design principles. I'm a big fan of simplicity. Uh, I think there are a lot of times smart people like to say important things <laughs> rather than saying one thing that's important. So uh, simplicity. And I also think, you know, this sounds a little bit gooey, but I think sounding like yourself is really important. One of the things about, you know, TED Talks, you know, that I've seen over the years is that I, I feel like a lot of them have started to sound alike because mm-hmm. everybody's trying to do it a certain way. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like the best kinds of talks and things that I that I hear is when it's like, oh, that's what this person, like I get an insight into the person, that's what this person is really like. This person isn't trying to conform to some particular way that he or she thinks you're supposed to sound, but the person sounds like him or herself. I'm so glad you said that. As soon as you said it, I'm like, well, of course, that, that's why I struggle with that sometimes, that sort of line between wanting to do well, but then making it your own. Yeah, making it your own. And I, that's another good way to put it. Like, like just... I mean, again, it sounds gooey, like be yourself. Um, (laughs) But I do think that there is this, especially with the rise of TED Talks and a lot of stuff on video, there is kind of, I think there's been a little bit of a homogenization Mm -hmm. so that people are all trying to sound, they think there's a certain way you're supposed to do it. And that's not it at all. Like there's some people out just like, oh, you should never have notes up there with you. (laughs) And I'm like, what the heck? Why not? (laughs) You know, like I'd rather have somebody with notes Mm. who sounds like self and has something to say than someone without notes who just has this heavily shellacked nonsense. Yeah. So my, my two cents for whatever that's worth. <laughs> well, we've touched on the key insights and main ideas of, of much of the book. Before I let you go, is there anything else, Dan, from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? No, I think you caught a huge amount of territory. Then there, There's more in the book, of course, but I mean, I'll, you, you know, your, your listeners can save that to when they read it. Absolutely. Or listen to it.
Or listen to it, yes. The book is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, out now. I highly recommend it. One of my favorite books of the year. Dan, thank you so much for, for coming back on Read to Lead. Jeff, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. If Dan's Twitter follower count is any indication, he's probably somebody you should be checking out on Twitter if you're not already. To connect with Dan via Twitter or LinkedIn, you can check out the show notes page created just for this episode. That's also where you'll find the links and other resources like the books Dan mentioned and everything else that we talked about. It's it's all wrapped in a nice, neat little package at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 222 for episode 222. If you're going to be in the Columbus, Ohio area in late October or would like to be and join me for an amazing conference called the Igniting Souls Conference. Tickets are still available through July 11, 2018 at the early bird rate. I'm speaking at the conference along with several other amazing folks and I'd love to meet you there. You can find out more about it by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash souls. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash S-O-U-L-S. It's the Igniting Souls Conference put on by Kerry Oberbrunner. Don't forget Chandler Bolt and I want to send you a free book, his book called Published. You can get it for free when you sign up for his free training, readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. And there's also that free 30-day trial from FreshBooks. Get access to all FreshBooks features. No obligation, no credit card needed. FreshBooks.com slash read to lead. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 